Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot. Scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week we are going to be talking about privacy. Privacy is just so important for those of us in the world of IoT and beacons. We're dealing with some very sensitive information about where people are, where things are, what's happening. And really, this can be make or break for entrepreneurs, whether you're an entrepreneur in a big company or a small company. Uh, Financial uh, repercussions, massive fines, reputational risk. So we have to get it right. And that's why I am very pleased to have Trevor Hughes with us. He's president and CEO of the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Trevor, welcome to the podcast. Hi, glad to be here. So uh, I would love to talk to you about a whole range of things, three buckets of topics. Uh, First one is state of privacy at the moment. Things Mm. are changing, uh, and and I I think it's worth having COVID-19 as an important uh, second topic. It's kind of related to that, I guess. But also, uh, it would be good, and maybe we should start with this, with you just introducing us to AI. IAPP, um, the International Association of Privacy Professionals. I was like, couldn't believe it. I heard you talk the other day at a seminar. It was excellent. Um, And then I started browsing through your website, and it is a cornucopia of resources. You're generous (laughs) uh, uh, in terms of what you make available. Um, Tell us a, a bit about your organization. Sure. So great to be here. Hi, Steve. Um, So I'm Trevor Hughes, CEO of the IAPP. We are the world's largest privacy organization. The IAPP has been around for 20 years. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. We are a not-for-profit professional association that represents all the people in the world who work in the field of privacy. Sometimes data protection is the way that we frame it, but privacy and data protection. So all the chief privacy officers, all the privacy engineers, privacy analysts, all of the privacy lawyers, they all belong to us. And we are unremarkable in the sense that there's lots of professional associations in the world. So the American Bar Association represents lawyers. The American Medical Association represents doctors. We represent 
chief privacy officers. What's remarkable about us or what's different about us is that we're a new field. We are a new profession. The IEPP is only 20 years old um, and we are growing like crazy. Uh, as the issue of privacy explodes around the world, we too are exploding with it. So the pandemic has slowed us down a little bit as it has many in the, the marketplace, but um, we are adding over a thousand members a month. We currently have 57,000 members in over 140 countries around the world. Um, we have 150 chapters in cities around the world. We have over 25,000 people certified. And we do all the things that professional associations do. So big conferences, you mentioned our website. We have thousands of knowledge assets available for our members. And significantly, we certify individuals in the field of information privacy. And I'll just end with one important thing, and that is we are not a lobbying group. So the IEPP is not an advocacy organization. We don't go to Capitol Hill or Brussels or any of the big public policy centers around the world to make a case for a particular law or try to stop a law. Uh, rather, we like to think of ourselves as a very, very big tent. So advocates and academics and regulators and public policy professionals and industry, they all come under our tent and they, they fight it out. And we kind of like the fight, but we don't pick sides. Very interesting. And your members are, uh, I mean, these are top shelf, uh, uh, Amazon, Walmart, Ernst & Young, Deloitte. Uh, you have an incredible set of corporate members as well as many, many uh, practicing professionals. I mean, what's the, what's the mission? You're not trying to change the law, uh, it sounds like. Uh, Correct. You're lobbying to change the law. Uh, what's what? Why why exist? So the mission is to define, promote, and improve the profession of privacy globally. I guess uh, I, I started by saying we're not a lobbying group or an advocacy group, but there is one thing that we believe strongly that we actually do say actively in in the world, and that is, you cannot do this with law alone. And you cannot solve privacy and data protection with a widget or a gadget or a piece of technology that you plug into your system. You need people who understand the issues. You need professionals. And so we very much are focused on the development of, the growth of, the improvement of the profession of privacy and data protection around the world. So we take it as our mission to support all the people that are in the field doing that work today, wherever they might be, however they might be doing that work. We also take it as our mission to identify um, those pathways that can create entrances to our profession, whether that's through higher education, through training or other means. And uh, you know, what are the certifications that you can get uh, under, under your organization's framework? Sure, so we, uh, like many professions, identify those people who have enough um, a skill and knowledge to, I, to be identified as, as, as certified or part of our, our profession. Our profession is an interesting one because it's hybridized. It's not a single thing. 38% of our members are lawyers, which means that a majority are not. 62% are something else. They're marketing professionals, IT professionals. They are HR professionals. They are business managers and analysts. As a result, our uh, certification schema 
falls into three major categories. CIPP is the Certified Information Privacy Professional, and that is for people who are focused on the law and policy of privacy all around the world. We actually think that's requisite knowledge for just about anybody who works in the field. The CIPM is the Certified Information Privacy Manager. That's the second domain. And that basically assumes that there's a bunch of laws, but then they have to be given life within an organization. And that requires all of the tools of business management. It includes privacy impact assessments, data inventories, data flow audits. It requires measures and metrics uh, so that you understand the performance of your program. So it's a management certification within um, uh, our programs. And then finally, the CIPT is the Certified Information Privacy Technologist. The Certified Information Privacy Technologist, CIPT, is for all those people who are working in IT and need to know enough privacy to get their job done. So it includes things like privacy by design, consent management controls, data subject access right controls. It includes all of the domains that an IT professional might need. So those three domains cover the waterfront for our certifications, and it's a pretty robust program. It's very interesting. Yeah, you cover multiple domains, and that says something about what we all need to consider when we're taking action within our own companies. You can't just delegate it to one person, clearly. Um, so last thing about your organization, just th these qualifications, uh, how long does it take to, if I decided I wanted to be a privacy consultant and I wanted to be, focus on the technology side or how, how, how much studying and, and, and what do the yeah. exams look like? So, of course, the answer is it depends. It depends on your background, your education, what you have done previously, what work you have done. Um, our programs all have a two-day training program that you can uh, that you can pursue through us or any of our training partners around the world. But we do recommend um, additional um, reading through the textbooks that is, are associated with all our programs. And for someone who is coming completely cold to the field of privacy, you may need to spend a lot of time doing some studying, a couple of weeks or more. Uh, for someone who is a lawyer or has been working as a as an information security or an IT privacy engineer, you may be able to jump in and get through it much more quickly. Uh, somebody who's been doing privacy for some time may not even need to do any training and they can go straight to the exam. So the answer is it really depends. One of the things that we are finding is increasingly universities, graduate programs, law schools, computer science programs around the world are adding data protection to their courses of study. I have a son who just a year ago finished his freshman year at Bentley University, and in his business ethics program, they actually talked about data privacy. They talked about privacy. And uh, that's a really big development, I think. So I, I think the amount of time necessary to train for our programs actually will reduce as we see future generations that have had data privacy, data protection and privacy as part of their core course of studies. Very interesting. Let's kind of segue now onto some of these other topics we wanted to cover. But before we dive into those, you know, what, what are the consequences of getting this wrong? Why, why, what, are, what are the reasons why you're getting this tidal wave of people coming to you and uh, certifying and, uh, and joining? Um, can you talk about what the stakes are? Yeah. So 
without question, the stakes are high. The stakes are incredibly high today. And um, it, it is, it's, I wanted to say it's unfortunate. It's not unfortunate, but it is a fact. It's a reality that often organizations are, re are responding to privacy because they perceive the risk of privacy. Now, those risks come in a few forms. First and foremost, organizations have a compliance risk. There is a regulatory risk associated with privacy. Whether you're operating in Europe and it's the GDPR or you're in the United States and it's one of the hundreds of privacy laws that may apply to you in the United States. If you're in Canada and it's PIPA or one of the provincial PIPA um, laws, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, many, many major jurisdictions around the world have privacy laws in place, and they have privacy regulators that are ensuring that those laws are being adhered to. So you have a compliance risk. Now, let's put an exclamation point at the end of that sentence, because that risk has been exploding recently. Um, many of you probably saw that last year, Facebook was fined $5 billion, and that's with a B, guys, $5 billion dollars for privacy violations um, associated with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, but also um, related to a prior consent agreement that Facebook had had with the Federal Trade Commission. That sent shockwaves through the entire um, uh, marketplace, not just the privacy field, but every CEO and board of directors around the planet sort of stood up and took notice when that happened. Um, that one fine was more than double the total of all previous privacy fines from any jurisdiction in the entire world in total. In other words, it was really, really big. So um, we need to pay attention to the privacy regulators around the world because they are enforcing and they are enforcing actively. But privacy risk doesn't just come from existing privacy law. We're also seeing um, antitrust and competition law emerge as a risk vector for many organizations that have large aggregations of data. The European regulators, Canadian regulators, American regulators have started to target and investigate large tech companies and other data aggregators to see if there's a competition issue there. And I think that's a notable thing as well. One more big financial risk is that for those companies that are publicly traded, if you have a privacy risk, you need to disclose it as a material risk within some of your public filings within financial markets. So the same day that Facebook was fined $5 billion, it was also by the Federal Trade Commission, it was also fined $100 million by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that was because Facebook had not disclosed appropriately the material risk associated with this privacy concern in their financial filings. So there are multiple vectors of financial and compliance risk. That's the first big bucket. Go ahead. Before we go on to the next bucket, just the financial thing, because that you got my attention. <laughs> and, and, and obviously okay. the, the, the billion number is super scary, although uh, I guess Facebook can probably afford it. They're, they're probably not going to be filing for Chapter 11 as a result of that. So I and, and, and that was under GDPR, I, I, I'm assuming the GDPR. Uh, no, 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 it wasn't. That was not a GDPR fine. It was from the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. Oh. And notably, notably, um, it was not under a national privacy law because the U.S. doesn't have one. 
The U.S. doesn't have a national privacy law. So what had happened was there was a prior privacy agreement with the Federal Trade Commission and Facebook. And when the Cambridge Analytica scandal emerged, it turned out that that was a violation of the prior agreement that Facebook had had with the Federal Trade Commission. And that's why the fine was so big. So I think the thing that worries me uh, is is fines that we can't afford. And I guess it's probably bad for the American government or the European government to put companies out of business with the fines. So presumably the fines will be proportionate, but one can imagine them being incredibly painful, uh, certainly embarrassing for any executive that needs to explain how they got the company into yeah. that situation. You know, what's, what's your feeling about the the size of these relative to the ability to pay and and, and what are we because we've covered GDPR um, I guess maybe a year ago uh, on this podcast um, and, and I remember at the time we didn't really have a good sense of how uh, aggressive enforcement was going to be what what's what are you seeing in terms of that level of aggression sure. and how punitive these fines can be relative to the ability to pay? So uh, let's start with a framing of the fining authority under GDPR. Um, the regulators in Europe have the ability to bring fines up to 2% of global turnover, which is to say 2% of global revenue. And for a large organization, a large multinational organization, that's a lot of revenue. That's a lot of revenue that um, that is subject to a fine. And I believe there are uh, uh, situations in which that may actually be increased. Uh, so the fines can be sizable, um, can be sizable. We are now two years into GDPR and there has been. I think many have identified in the in the in the regulatory world a comparative lack of fines. We just haven't seen as many as we thought there would be this massive piece of regulation, and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, it turns out that all of those data protection authorities were basically being given new tools for the first time. Many of them had never had fining authority before. And so just like every other organization in the world that had to build up their GDPR compliance efforts, the data protection authorities, the regulators, all 27, 28 of them in Europe, 27 now after Brexit, 28 uh, pre-Brexit, um, they had to build their enforcement capabilities. So they had to hire people, build the, the programs and structures for them to bring cases. As they started to bring cases, that takes time as well. They had to initiate investigations, conduct investigations, negotiate the result with the um, investigated party. And then they have to report it up to a harmonization process at something called the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB. And this was an important part of GDPR. And it was a mechanism to try to create consistency in enforcement across Europe. All of those processes are now starting to finalize and play out. And so what we are seeing or what we have experienced is basically a lag. There was a latency before the first uh, wave of, of compliance initiatives would start to come to the market. That's starting now. So I would watch the next six months and hereafter because we will start to see a steady drumbeat of these enforcement actions across Europe. We've already started to see some. Notably, the Irish regulator, the Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon in, in Ireland, 
has a number of cases um, uh, with large tech companies that are expected to come to light anytime now. And so within the next weeks or months, uh, we're, we're all waiting with popcorn in the privacy field because it's sort of an exciting moment. We, we have, we're holding our breath because these are going to be big announcements. Yeah, it sounds like a, like a gladiator forum where you're looking for the first blood to be shed. So, okay. So very significant financial uh, um, consequences. And I interrupted you as you were about to move on. To some of yeah, the other yeah. so so that's the first bucket. And look, most general counsel, um, uh, VPs of compliance, you know, VP of risk, chief risk officer, they're going to have their radar lit up by the fact that there are major fines. Certainly uh, a risk and governance committee of a board of directors is going to care about that as well. But here's the really important thing. Privacy is also a brand issue now. And if you are on the wrong side of privacy, um, uh, that can affect your brand really substantially, really quickly. You know, as we went into the pandemic, I, I, I certainly felt a little bit of, of sympathy for Zoom, um, the, 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 the video conferencing platform, because all of a sudden they went from, you know, from, from going 10 miles an hour to going 1,000 miles an hour with the number of people accessing their platform. And it exposed a lot of privacy issues. And so they had to scramble really quickly, lest they lose the moment in which they, uh, they had this opportunity to grow aggressively. That can really hurt your brand. Now, I think Zoom has done an admirable job to try to wrap themselves around some of the privacy issues that emerged. We're also seeing something interesting emerge in the marketplace, though, and that is organizations competing actively on privacy. Look at anything Apple says or does right now, and they talk about privacy being a fundamental human right. Look at anything Microsoft does right now, and they talk about their strong embrace of privacy and data protection around the world. It is not a coincidence that Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Apple, these major tech companies are actually marching to uh, uh, Capitol Hill in Washington and saying, we need national privacy legislation. There is more love for privacy in the commercial marketplace right now than there has ever been ever before. And that's because organizations have recognized that privacy is just another word for trust. And trust is the mechanism through which you make your brand sticky, you bring customers to you, and you keep them for a long time. And so there has been a sort of a light bulb moment among CEOs, chief marketing officers, and others who have said, oh, I get it. This privacy thing just isn't about complying with the law. It's actually about doing things that our customers expect and treating them with respect and making our relationships sticky and long lasting and profitable for us and meaningful for them. So watch privacy expand as a, as a competitive issue, because if you get it wrong, you can rest assured that your competitors are going to beat the heck out of you in the marketplace for being on the wrong side of the issue. And I kind of, on one hand, I love Apple products and, and I think Tim Cook is an amazing CEO. I, I kind of feel like he's using this privacy thing as a weapon, though. It's sort of almost a cynical way of poking at Google <laughs> competitively. And um, look. Uh, look. Yeah, look, it's it it certainly is a um, it is a 
brand and product feature of of Apple, and they are embracing it strongly. If that plays to their benefit competitively in the marketplace, I'm sure they're not upset by that. I'm sure that is part of the strategy. But again, if you're an organization that is struggling or does not have a good story to tell with regards to privacy and data protection, you, your competitors are going to eat you for lunch. And whether they're doing that in a mercenary way as sort of active market combatants, you said gladiators, let's use that metaphor, as gladiators in the arena, okay, or whether that do, they're doing that because they, they, they really believe privacy is a human right and they're embracing it, the result is the same, and that is you get eaten for lunch. Well, this is the thing, though. I, 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 on one hand, I want privacy too, but what I hate to see is good ideas killed for frivolous reasons, because we're kind of being driven into a direction because of, you know, the 1% of people who really do read the small print. And, uh, you know, in the past, we've talked about privacy is so challenging because we're all connected. And so, yeah, only 1% of the people that read the small print and they read your privacy policy and they spot that you're really either not living up to it or you have a very weak one and then they tell everyone else and then suddenly you've got a product boycott on your hand. So that's kind of, I guess, wallowing a bit more in what goes wrong. But the thing, you know, so this podcast is very much about Internet of Things and tagging things and, uh, and I get excited about it because I'm an optimist. I see how having a tag in your passport and you lose it. And I don't know if you've ever lost your passport, but it's like the worst feeling in the world. Uh, you're, you, 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 you know, it's just horrible. Um, and if we can, there's things we can do that really make life better. Uh, and some of it can be sailing very close to the wind. We're, you know, we're looking at putting tags in pill bottles so you open them up and you can keep track of your loved ones, whether they're taking their medicine. There's a privacy issue there. Uh, potentially, sure. you, you you put tags in people's clothing. They leave their jacket in a bar; they can find it. But so I feel like if we get driven into privacy puritanism, that is completely unrealistic. We we kill the potential of of what we can achieve. So that's really just me venting. But you know, what advice would you give to, to us yeah. this community about how we can unlock some of these very, very cool things and not get stifled yeah. because we're worried about being fined or boycotted because you know some small fraction of people find what we're doing offensive? Well, so let me start with, I think you're presenting a false choice. It's not an either or. Uh, I think the reality is, is that privacy is a necessary design feature for any new innovative technology. I want all of the things that you described. I want my passport to be deactivated automatically if I lose it and to make it easier for me to find it and somebody else not to, to engage in identity theft. I would love to have an RFID tag in my jacket so that if I leave it a, at a bar, I might be able to find it later or, or a, um, um, you know, a, a, a Bluetooth beacon on top of a, a prescription bottle so I know if my parents are taking the pills that they need to take. Look, we want the digital economy to serve us. We want it to serve us in powerful and meaningful ways. We want it to make our lives better. Technology should serve us. At the same time, 
we want to feel a sense of trust and engagement. So let me use a couple of examples. First of all, um, I often describe um, going into a hotel room and switching on the lights. Now, when I go into a hotel room and switch on the lights, I may be in a foreign country. I may never have been to that hotel before. And the light switch has a very simple user interface. It's binary, on or off, up or down. And that's all I know. But when I flip that switch, I want the lights to come on. I want that, that function to serve me. But think about all of the protections and code and control that exists within that system. There likely was a licensed electrician who pulled the wiring through the wall. There was a building code that described what type of wire and how you routed it and how it meant it needed to be connected to the switch box and to the light fixture. The light itself probably has an underwriter laboratory seal on it because it has been safety tested somewhere. Basically, when I flip that switch, I don't want to start a fire. I don't want something to explode in the room. I expect it to work to serve me. But there are lots of controls that exist within that system to help me trust that when I flip that switch, everything's going to be okay. Privacy is the same way. I want to open up my smartphone and be able to say, call my mom and have my smartphone do that. But I don't want it to do something that would surprise me, that would feel creepy, that is outside of the parameters of the engagement that I have with that technology. So that's the first example is the hotel light switch. The second one is actually much more contemporary and it's playing out right now around the world. And that is contact tracing and exposure notification within the COVID-19 pandemic. We are seeing the explosion of these. And in fact, the IEPP is going to have just a phenomenal uh, keynote conversation between Apple and Google up on our website soon, a little teaser on this exact topic. But here's the thing. We have also seen in the midst of the Black Lives Matters protests, efforts by local authorities to use some of those contact tracing mechanisms to identify which protesters were showing up at um, protests. Now, that's a use of that technology that is 100% outside of the realm of expectation of the person who may have downloaded something or participated in a contact tracing app. And if that is indeed happening, again, the IEPP is not an advocacy organization, but I personally find that deeply offensive. And so we need to ensure that we bake privacy into these technologies so that we can uh, embrace them, we can use them, and and um, and that they are trustworthy. And if you'll let me tell one more story, I have a great analogy to sort of wrap this up with a bow. So we often get this pushback in the field of privacy. I started over 20 years ago as a privacy leader and privacy lawyer inside the ad tech industry. And without question, there was a lot of pushback when, every time we raised a, a restriction or something that, that we would have to do that the product people or the marketing people desperately did not want to do. And then one day, the, the former chief privacy officer of Microsoft told me a story, and it, it sort of fixed that dynamic for me forever. So here's the issue. I want you to think of brakes on a car, and I want you to think of what brakes do. 
And the most common answer is that they slow cars down, right? That's what brakes are there to do. They slow cars down. It actually turns out to be exactly the opposite. When automobiles were first developed, brakes were not a concurrent technology. So we had internal combustion engines and automobiles before there was an effective braking mechanism within vehicles. So much so that you couldn't drive fast. In fact, in the United States and elsewhere, there were laws about what you had to do when you were driving a car because it was quite literally a death machine. There was something called red flag laws in the United States where someone had to walk in front of your automobile waving red flags to warn people that you were coming down the street with this death machine. And your car could only go 10, 15 miles an hour because otherwise you would be putting yourself and everybody else at risk. So what happened when we introduced brakes? Well, cars could stop, but cars could actually go faster. It allowed cars to go faster because they were safer, they were better suited to, to the purpose at hand, and people both driving them and around them in society could trust them more. I think privacy is like brakes on cars. You might think that it slows you down, but in fact, if you do it right and it's a functional feature of the product that you're introducing into the marketplace, it helps you build trust with your customers and go faster eventually. Yeah, I think that's a very good metaphor. And uh, I, th I think without legislation and standards, we end up with the, having to have the guy with the flag in front of us because we're so terrified that something bad's going to happen. But if we have sensible frameworks in place that are uh, consistent, then that helps. And of course, they're not, cons they're not consistent. I mean, America is a very inconsistent country, 50 different sure. legislatures and... Uh, and so forth. Um, so I'm tempted to, uh, to talk a bit about that. Let's talk about uh, There's so many things I want to talk to you about, but let's talk about that inconsistency. <laughs> how how, how sure. much of a practical issue is there? Because we have, you know, this Californian uh, privacy legislation, which is groundbreaking. We have the GDPR. How much fragmentation is there around the world? Because typically, we, we work with technology companies. Very few of them are just focusing on Europe. They want Europe and the, and the U.S. And they probably want South America eventually and uh, China. And uh, how, uh, how much of a deal is that fragmentation? Should we just sure. be focusing on highest common denominator in terms of the best yep. standards, full disclosure, transparency, security, and looking after the data. How feasible is it to bring those different frameworks together and, and have one policy that uh, doesn't uh, create a nightmare for us? So Steve, I have good news and bad news. Which would you like first? Oh, uh, give me the good news. Okay. so. <laughs> So uh, here's the good news, and that is that the GDPR has clearly become a global framework. If your organization, the organization that you're working in, um, is subject to the GDPR, that clearly around the world has become a baseline expectation of operations. And many major laws around the world, like the LGPD in Brazil, which goes into effect in August of this year, 
are largely based on the GDPR. And I think that model will continue. So one of the greatest exports of the European Union right now is their regulatory frameworks. And the GDPR is a good example of that. So in terms of a highest common denominator, lowest common denominator, common framework, I think many organizations today are starting with GDPR. So that's the good news. The bad news is, is that it's never going to be enough. So the GDPR is always a starting place, but then there will be jurisdictional variation all around the world forever. Privacy laws emerge out of the cultures that write those laws. And it turns out that privacy is a culturally normative value. So Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Privacy is different for a person in India than it is for a person in Mexico, than it is for a Canadian like myself, than it is for a Belgian. Um, And that is just a fact. So the laws are always going to be different around the world. So as much as GDPR has become a common framework, I think it is very clear that the complexity and the volume of laws that we need to deal with around the world and the number of variations, derogations to GDPR, those are going to increase as well. Gartner, the major research firm, did an interesting study. And in January, January of this year, they estimated that 10% of the world's population was subject to a national privacy law. They also estimated that within three years, by 2023, that 65% of the world's population would be subject to a national privacy law. What that tells me is that it's likely that the complexity of our current world is going to get multiplied six and a half times in the coming three years. And we shouldn't run and hide from that. We should be building robust foundational platforms of compliance and management within our organizations so that we're ready for it, because it will catch some organizations flat-footed, to be sure. Very interesting. Um, At a housekeeping level, do you have a hard stop at the top of the hour, or can we go a little bit longer? Okay, that's great. We can go longer if you like. I'd love to, because there's still stuff that we need to get through that's important. I want to still talk about COVID and... uh, Uh, We've been talking a lot about what's topical, and I guess there's nothing more topical than, um, you know, what's happening at the moment, Black Lives Matters, the tragedies on the on the streets. Uh, We're recording this on Juneteenth. So we'll uh, we're kind of celebrating a a major transition in uh, moving from slavery to uh, to something better, although far from perfect. I, I do want to go back to this point that you raised earlier about the facial recognition and that is a 
I think it's fascinating because on one hand, it's clear that we shouldn't be using that to persecute people exercising their right to free speech. And uh, but the flip side is terrorists who you uh, are trying to track, who have murderous intent. Uh, Facial recognition can be very useful for that. Uh, And so how how do we balance that? Uh, Because I'm a little concerned that, um, you know, some of this technology is is going to be turned off when it's required to keep us safe. And yet, on the flip side, I, I don't want people to be uh, uh, to, 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 to be terrorized because they're doing something they should be doing, which is pointing out terrible injustice. Yeah. So let me start by saying that, first of all, I don't have the answers to many of these questions. And some of these, I think, do not have clear answers yet. Um, but let me give you a bit of a, uh, a little bit of the lay of the land and then come back to this tension, this balance between use of technology and, and public security and a sense of security individually um, with individual rights and liberties and, and the value, the right of privacy, the human truth of privacy. So first of all, um, facial recognition is an incredibly, incredibly contentious technology in the marketplace today. Uh, it's in the wild already. There are broad platforms that exist where actually uh, organizations are scanning social media and other online services to develop archives of facial recognition. So um, there are technologies in the marketplace today. We are concurrently seeing moratoriums um, and bans on facial recognition in some cases from municipal governments up through states, through smaller jurisdictions. And then notably in the past uh, couple of months, some of the major tech companies, Microsoft, Amazon and others have stepped up and said, We are either going to put a moratorium on facial recognition in its entirety or a moratorium on selling facial recognition tools to national governments. The tension there, the tension there is the is the tension that I described previously with the COVID-19 contact tracing and exposure notification that when we develop a technology for a single purpose, and I think everyone would agree that public safety and stopping terrorists before they can do harm in society is a valid and worthwhile goal for society to pursue. I think we could agree that if we could contain it in a box and it would never ever come out of that box, that that technology makes sense for that purpose or could be used legitimately for that purpose. But it almost never is contained within that box. There is almost always scope creep. There are mechanisms through which that that technology gets used to impinge on other rights. And it took us more than 10 years after 9-11 for Edward Snowden to basically disclosed to the world that the NSA was doing some data collection things that didn't seem consistent with the law or with the expectations of consumer or citizen privacy within the United States and beyond. Um, I think there are many who look at facial recognition and say, look, before we have to wait 10 years after the implementation of a technology to find out that it was misused, 
let's put some meaningful controls on it from the outset. Let's understand how it's going to be used. And let's make sure that we have an architecture of governance that wraps around it so that those organizations that do use it are accountable for its use, that they are held to account to only use it for the purpose for which it was developed and, and, and launched and for no other purpose. So again, I don't have a perfect answer to this, but I do know that better accountability, better governance, better control, better transparency are all gonna be important tools as we try to embrace these emerging technologies. Because the other thing I think that history has shown us is that a technology that is created is very hard to contain once in the wild. So it's not like we're going to be able to pull facial recognition back. Um, and certainly, given the complexity of the governments around the world, pop up all around the world and in a global digital economy, that means it's all around the world all the time. Yeah, it's a challenging thing. Um, and I, I went through uh, immigration uh, just before this whole COVID thing was erupting. They were shutting down the flights from Europe. I had to switch flights to get back into the country. And, but once I went across the border, uh, they, did, they used facial recognition. Uh, I didn't have to use my fingerprints. So much more accurate, so much better. I, I, I uh, got through super quickly. But uh, yeah, I, hopefully, I mean, the telephone can be used for terrible things from a privacy perspective. You just talked about... Uh, some examples there, but we haven't banned the telephone. We just uh, we, we do have regulations around that. So hopefully, uh, some of the professionals in your organization can help us uh, uh, navigate that balance. And you word, you you use the word balance, and I think you probably use it a lot because uh, it, it seems like that's a big part of your professionals' lives in helping to exercise the, the balance. I, I I thought about it particularly actually yesterday. I was uh, on a call with. Uh, the Sustainability Consortium, which is actually a pretty big group, uh, Walmart and uh, many uh, large uh, brands are, are part of this thing. And they have this project, it's very cool, called Wherever. And Wherever, spelt W-E-A-R, uh, is about putting tags in clothing to make the clothing more sustainable, to move from fast fashion to sustainable fashion so that uh, hmm. you can pass your garment on from one person to the other. Um, and part of that is having tags in the clothing that can measure when they're worn and how often they're worn. And how many things do you have in your wardrobe that you haven't worn for a year? There's probably, I would guess, uh, unless you're much too many. than I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a significant percentage of, uh, of, uh, of the stuff that you don't wear. So there's clearly some privacy issues there. And so they had done a survey, and I thought it was fascinating. And they'd asked, how much do you see benefit in these applications, being able to uh, get advice on what you wear and uh, um, uh, help save the planet? by Because uh, uh, clothing manufacture can be very toxic to... Uh, uh, to the environment. Yeah. Um, so a lot of good potential there. And then, of course, they asked the question about privacy. And I was pleasantly surprised that the answer was no, um, you know, moderate, moderate concern. So not high concern at sure. all. Uh, but of course, yeah. you know who the audience was. It was a study done by some great universities with students who are young. And so, you know, you have this balance between young people with, uh, who are exposing incredibly intimate pictures of themselves on social media 
and then old fogies like me, uh, who, uh, you know, some of my friends don't even use social media. So how sure. do I balance a, a strategy and, 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 and address those two constituencies? And, uh, and maybe a follow up is, I, I, I guess, do we have to expect that this will change as as us old people die and these younger people who have been born with the Internet um, take over? So, I, boy, a bunch of answers there. Um, first of all, the framing of the question to the um, uh, to the group in that survey probably is really important. If you frame it, hey, we're going to do all these great things for you and we're going to use your data for all these purposes, might you be okay with that from a privacy perspective? You know, my answer is probably going to be the same. Yeah, you know, privacy is a moderate concern, but if you're trustworthy and you're doing the right things with it, great, great. Um, if you then said, well, hey, we're going to monitor what you're wearing, and if you're wearing a lot of something, that's going to become a marketing um, a metric for us, and we're going to send you messages um, to buy more of whatever it is that... Um, uh, you were wearing a lot of, you know, I might have a bit more sensitivity. And then if you said, hey, if you're wearing a particular type of clothes, we're going to sell your data forward so that others can contact you. The answer probably would be, heck no, you are. You're not going to do that. So privacy is always on a continuum of expectations. It's always a dynamic and fluid reality. That's the first thing. So how you frame those questions is incredibly important. And for all of your listeners, I would highly recommend a law review article, a piece written by Jules Polonetsky and Omer Tene, and it's called A Theory of Creepy. And what they were trying to do, so many people around the world have tried to wrap their hands around the idea of privacy and why it's so important and like when you cross a line. And what Omer and Jules did in their piece was they said, you know, when we ask people about when privacy is violated, how they feel, the word that they often use is that feels creepy. And so what you don't want to be is creepy. You don't want to be creepy. You don't want your customers to feel surprised, shocked, or to feel like you're doing something with their data that they didn't expect in the terms of the deal that they negotiated with you. It's the classic story of the before when we had flashlight apps on our smartphones that there was a flashlight app that was collecting location data. And when people found that out, they were like, whoa, wait a minute, this is a flashlight app. All I needed to do is switch on the flash on my, on my, on my smartphone so that I can put my car key into the car door. Um, you shouldn't need my location data, that's creepy. So that's the first thing, don't be creepy. The second thing is we should always recognize that privacy has individual variability. So Steve, you and I probably have different expectations of privacy in different contexts in our lives. It turns out that I run the IEPP, the world's largest privacy organization, and I would put myself sort of in the middle of the pack. I'm in the peloton of privacy sensitivity. My wife is way out ahead of me. Like she has real sensitivity around her personal privacy. And that's not right or wrong. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. And so know that there's individual variability as well. That's one of the reasons that providing your customers 
not with forced choice, where they have to read a ton of stuff and they need to make decisions about things that they don't necessarily understand, but rather giving them control panels behind the scenes so that they can play with the dials if they really want to. That's why that's a really powerful idea. Last point I'll raise is that, yes, there is generational difference, age difference when it comes to expectations of privacy and and personal or generational um, um, concerns about privacy. But don't ever think for a second that the youth today do not care about privacy, because it turns out that every every sociological study that's been done shows that they do. They do. But they actually are using these technologies in a much more native way than we ever did. And so um, the uh, youth today, young people today, probably are more facile with these technologies and have a greater sense of them than we might have ever had. And they're embracing them on their own terms. But without question, privacy is something that they care about. And they will use the same word that I started with, which is creepy. And they will switch off um, apps, programs, platforms when they find that uh, they're violating their privacy. I I really like this advice you're giving. It's so uh, reasonable. Uh, (laughs) But I'm glad I've got you on the show because I do have a bone to pick with you and the privacy population. GDPR came in, in my mind, undoubtedly a good thing. But with the exception of those cookie notices on websites. <laughs> I, it just drives me insane. I say it's sort of in jest slightly, but it does drive me crazy, seriously. And part of me thinks, is this a legacy? Have we gone beyond this? I think we all know that websites have to try and track us to personalize the experience. And How do you feel about that notice? Are you like, yes, or are you like, really? Well, um, how do I feel about that notice? I I will admit there is a sense of um, defeat. How how about that? Uh, When I started as a privacy professional over 20 years ago, I mentioned that I was heading up privacy at a tech company, an ad tech company. So we were doing behavioral advertising in 1999-2000, which was some of the earliest behavioral targeting, um, preference-based targeting on the web. And guess what we were arguing about? Cookie consent. We were arguing about cookie consent. We were negotiating with regulators, the FTC, state AGs, with the European Parliament, on what is the appropriate level of consent associated with cookies. And I personally, in 2002, 2003, was in Brussels going around with a super heavy laptop showing members of European Parliament what the web would look like if we had to have consents pop up prior to the use of cookies. In fact, I was so sophisticated I used all of the local papers and brought up a page of the sports scores for like the local football team, the soccer team from whatever MEP it was that I was talking to. And I showed how many cookies were on that page. Um, The debate is exactly the same today. So there is a sense of, of frustration and futility, almost a sense of defeat that we haven't solved this yet. And, and I'm both, um, disappointed and defeated by that. But I also think there's a lesson in it. And that is, there is a concern there that we have not yet solved. 
There is a lack of transparency. There is a lack of awareness of how that data is being used. And quite frankly, if you look at the ad tech world and the complexity of it, the way that data moves around, the way that your eyeballs are bought and sold through ad exchanges, I think there remains a reckoning um, that will occur with regards to, uh, to ad tech and to the use of cookies. With that said, state management is absolutely critical. The web does not work without tools like cookies. And so I do worry that if we end up with regulatory or legislative barriers to the use of cookies as a particular technology, that it will actually, um, we will find that we move towards other state management tools that are less transparent, less manageable, less controllable, and and that's not necessarily a good thing. It is interesting. Okay, um, before we wrap up, I do want to just spend a few minutes on COVID nineteen and just get your um, sure. kind of executive highlights on what the implications are for privacy and and. You have this Ernst & Young report on your website. There's a lot of data. Anyone can access it. But, you know, what does, how has COVID-19 impacted us from a privacy perspective? Like so many other things in the world, the pandemic has slowed things down. So from a legislative perspective, from a regulatory development perspective, even I would say from an enforcement perspective, it's just become harder to do things because we're all working virtually, and much of that has slowed down. There are other um, initiatives distracting public policymakers. So we have seen fewer new laws and other things emerge. Um, however, however, enforcement is still happening. New laws are still happening. And the trajectory for privacy is ascendant and more complex. So don't think for a second that COVID-19 has kind of ripped the guts out of this issue and it, it's, it's kind of going to go away and die. Absolutely not the case. And I fully believe the Gartner report that says within three years, 65% of the world's population will be subject to national privacy law. So that's privacy writ large. Slow down for a little bit. The road may be a little twisty and turny and bumpy, but make no mistake, it is upwards and ascendant in the future. This issue will only get bigger and your organizations will have to deal with it. Then specifically with COVID-19 itself, it turns out that in the digital economy, privacy is almost always the first social issue that needs to be tackled in order for us to get to the functionality that we hope to get to. So as COVID-19 emerged, of course, many of the responses that we have are heavy uses of data. So whether it's health screening at airports or your places of employment, retail establishments, you're gathering health information. How are you gathering that? How are you storing it? What are you creating? Where is it sitting? Who gets access to it? What other uses might there be? Health screening is an absolutely massive issue. We saw um, a, a proposal initiated, I think it was in Washington state, where people would have at a restaurant would have to create a log of everyone who came into the restaurant and when they were there. Now, that may sound right from a contact tracing perspective. You want to know who was sitting in that restaurant. And if someone is diagnosed, you can see when they were at the restaurant and who might have been around them at that time. So you can go back and notify them. But what if you are having um, a lunch with 
a lover or a mistress or someone that you don't want the world to know that you're having a lunch with. And that documentation is sitting there. What if the fact that you were at that restaurant is not something that should be shared broadly? There weren't really controls on that. We've got to build those privacy controls. Contact tracing, exposure notification, it's also called, or that's the extension of contact tracing. That's going to show up on our smartphones soon. It will be a necessary component to our solutions to the pandemic. And we're going to have to figure out the privacy implications. There will be a massive, massive, urgent desire to use that rich trove of data for other things other than contact tracing and exposure notification. And this is a Bluetooth tool. It's something that the IoT world may actually intersect with pretty actively. Um, contact tracing, I can tell you now, will have massive privacy issues associated with it. Google and Apple have released a shared platform, a Bluetooth-based platform um, that has privacy controls baked in, but watch that space. Here's one more, and that is immunity passports. Before we get a vaccine, one of the ways that markets will reopen is through individuals having been diagnosed and then receiving an immunity passport because they have antibodies and they are not subject to or they're immune from, um, uh, from COVID-19. The privacy controls around those immunity passports, the way that we distinguish online and in person who has them, who doesn't, who gets access to things. There are many, many privacy issues there as well. The list goes on and on and on. We created an issue spotting tool for our members, and there's at least 20 unique issues. It even goes into, and this is how detailed and complex it gets, into local courts. So if you or I were arrested for speeding or something and we had to show up in court, that used to be done with a lawyer and you could speak in the hallway privately with that lawyer. Today, that's being done over Zoom. It's being done over video conferencing platforms and the attorney-client privilege that previously existed in our private conversation in the hallway where the lawyer may say, so what are you thinking? Do you want to negotiate? Should we please? Should we do this? Take a fine? What do you want to do? Um, that conversation can't happen in the way that it used to happen and it's happening in hearings in real time in front of a judge and with others in that video conferencing platform. We have many privacy issues in the pandemic. And for me, it's just an example of how privacy is never going to go away. It is a persistent, eternal negotiation within society because it defines the boundary between the individual and the larger society. And as long as that boundary exists, and it has for all of human history and will for all of human history, we will be negotiating that boundary. Uh, there are so many issues. I think one of the ones that you, uh, your organizations pointed out is the fact that we're working from home more. And so suddenly you're talking to someone about something very confidential and that conversation could be echoing around the halls of, uh, of an environment where teenage kids could be listening. And uh, I don't know what we do about that. Uh, it's very yeah, look, I, it's another very good example. And it's one of the many that we identified for our members and that we are exploring. Um, there's a fantastic academic named Helen Nissenbaum at New York University. And she wrote a book called Privacy in Context. 
And really what the, the thesis of the book was that for much of our analog history, we had contexts of privacy. There was a context of privacy at the workplace. There was a context of privacy on Main Street in our towns and cities. There's a context of privacy in a locker room, in your living room, in your bedroom, in your bathroom. There's all these different contexts of privacy. And while we didn't necessarily have laws, we had normative values in those places as to how to manage privacy. One of the things the digital revolution has done is it's broken down the boundaries between those contexts. And what you're describing is the decontextualization of the workplace. So if I'm working from home, where am I? Am I at work or am I at home? Which privacy rules control? I don't mind sharing with you and your listeners that when I'm at home, I my boxer shorts. Now, that's clearly not appropriate in a work-from-home context, right? I should be wearing pants. You can't tell right now, but I am. But that that is a context of privacy, and we are blurring those boundaries. Actually, I'm wearing shorts, but um, it's a context of privacy. It's a context of privacy that's been blown up because of the decontextualization driven by the digital economy and now exacerbated by the pandemic because all of us are at home and we are working at the same time. I have to say, I was expecting our privacy standards as, as, as people, you know, what we were willing to accept to be moderated by this. But it doesn't seem that's the case. I, I mean, I grew up in England where there's cameras everywhere. And, you know, it wasn't a big deal because it could be rough out there. And if it keeps right. you safe, then you were willing to accept that. I, I feel like that standard is less willingly accepted in in this country. And I thought that because this was a matter of life and death, that people would be willing to give up more information about who they had met because sharing that information could mean that, that, that uh, thousands of people's lives are, are, are saved. I, I am somewhat surprised at the reaction to, uh, to these apps uh, that I thought people would welcome. And I don't know whether that's a sign that privacy really is more important than life, uh, uh, or, or is it just a general lack of acceptance that the stakes really are as high as they are? What are you seeing in that context? Do you, do you see, think our standards yeah. are, 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 are being raised or lowered, or what's happening? Um. I don't think they're being raised or lowered. I think they're actually being incredibly consistent. I think our expectations of privacy, they, there are normative variations um, uh, to those expectations. But generally, we want technologies to do the things that technologies are supposed to do for us. We want them to make our lives better. But if it steps over into creepy, or if there's a lack of transparency and we don't understand what's happening, or if there's a clear violation of our expectations, and my contact tracing app on my phone is now documenting the fact that I'm at a Black Lives Matter protest, I care a lot. And if those controls aren't built in from the very beginning, well, I might be a little hesitant to embrace that technology out of the box. If, if there is not a sense that those types of controls and protections exist, and I will note that there have been at least two 
uh, COVID-19 privacy bills introduced on Capitol Hill to try to wrap around exactly some of these issues, to provide some boundaries into which data use can be robust for addressing the COVID-19 crisis, but also proscribed so that that data use doesn't exceed what our expectations might be. So it really does come back to how are we using these technologies to make our lives better? And are we ensuring that, that those technologies are within those boundaries of, of, of consumer citizen expectations? They're not straying into a, a world of being creepy. Um, and they really are making uh, lives better all around the world. That's a constant negotiation that's never going to go away. Well, I think that message has come through loud and clear. You've given some really good advice. It's, uh, uh, it's been very engaging. I've got, I got to thank you very much, Trevor Hughes, President and CEO of International Association of Privacy Professionals. Uh, we really appreciate your spending time with us. Steve, it was great. Thank you. So, so uh, first of all, I guess, is music important to you or is it just sort of background noise? Uh, absolutely important to me. Yeah, music has been a big part of my life throughout my life. Um, and uh, I actually dedicate a lot of volunteer time to local arts organizations that bring arts to our local community. So uh, I've always been I'm, I'm not a musician. I am just a, uh, a big fan. No, yeah, same, same with me. Uh, so we're on the on the, uh, the same level, I think, in that respect. So tough choice, but three songs. Um, are there three songs that maybe mean something to you from your life, or just uh, good tools that you use uh, in your life? I actually think some of the earliest uh, earliest songs that I became attached to somehow are imprinting. And, and so those are going to be the three that I choose. Um, the first has to be David Bowie and uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Now, it's the whole album. Okay. I probably listened to that on repeat over and over and over and over again when I was 12, 13 years old, uh, living in Canada. And uh, uh, but but the one song, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, that, that certainly um, sticks in my head. So that's the first one. Second one is the Talking Head, songs of building, buildings and food. More songs of buildings and food. I think the title of the album is. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, the song, As Those Days Go By, um, I think that's the title of the song. But that album was incredibly formative for me. Um, absolutely formative for me. Yeah, um, what an amazing band. I, uh, I I sort of felt for all the other band members when David Byrne decided to split. Uh, and I, I got a chance to talk to him. I was in the audience, but he he uh, came to Portland, Oregon, where I uh, first moved to when I came to this country. And uh, he gave a presentation on PowerPoint. Can you believe that? Uh, wow, that's <laughs> incredible. He, PowerPoint He's, is an art form. And uh, I, it was just very quirky. I, he, he did a concert in uh, the San Diego um, Zoo, um, and then like the following day, which we saw, and then the following day he gave this presentation. The guy is just amazing. 
Yeah, he really is amazing. You know, he's so expansive in what he explores musically. It's kind of like Paul Simon as well. Yes. You know, David Byrne has wrapped his head around Brazilian music, and Latin music, and all sorts of other things. I don't know if you saw the Saturday Night Live episode. Um, it was within the past six months, I think, where they actually had his band from the Broadway show that he's done. And I must have watched that video on YouTube like 10 times over. It was so good. Um, so, yeah, David Byrne, huge fan. Um, and then if I was to pick a last one, I'd have to say it's Peter Gabriel and Salisbury Hill is just always a favorite song of mine. And I can listen to that anytime, anytime ever. Um, it, it, but then I would broaden the Peter Gabriel thing to his album Sledgehammer because that was my first year of university, and that was that was massively formative for me. Uh, that was the year of 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 uh, uh, U2's uh, uh, big breakthrough album, Graceland by Paul Simon, and Peter Gabriel did Sledgehammer, and those all came out my first year of university, and uh, and they were on heavy uh, repeat in my early days. Awesome choices. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.